did I help this person to become the biggest possible version of themselves? Like, and as a result, kind of like set their company on a new path. Like that's what I want to be doing for people. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing here at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Anna Barber, who's a partner at M13, a Los Angeles-based venture capital firm. She's previously the Managing Director of Techstars LA. She's also a partner at The Fund LA. She serves on the advisory board of Pledge LA, and she's a member of All Rays. We dive into a lot in this episode. Let's get to it. Anna, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, I appreciate taking the time. For people who aren't familiar with M13 Venture Fund, tell us a little bit more about what you all do at M13 and your role there as well, Anna. Yeah, absolutely. I joined M13 in December of 2020 as a partner um, on the investing team. We're a consumer-focused venture fund investing at Series A across the future of consumer behavior, the big buckets of consumer behavior. So thinking about health and work and commerce and the future of money. Um, with Web3 as a sort of strong through line into all of that. With that as well. So knowing that that's the focus, I feel like M13 is such a great brand. And from seeing M13 for the last number of years and like all the stuff you guys do, it's like, uh, when I saw that news that you had joined, I'm like, this is great. Like they deserve her. She's wonderful. But for you, just take me through that even process of joining M13. I'm curious about that. It was like almost two years ago now. Like, take me through that. Yeah, so I'd heard a lot about the firm and I knew them a bit. Um, I'd, I'd met Courtney and Carter. I mean, I met Matt Hoffman, who's their head of talent. Um, and so I knew them by reputation and knew that they were hiring a really interesting kind of diverse group of people who had sort of one common through line, which was everyone was a former operator. And I thought that was really interesting Um you know, a really interesting strategy. And that was also my background. So I got into investing kind of really late in my career, sort of after having had a full career as an operator. And so I liked that idea of kind of working with other, you know, other operators. Um, And, you know, Carter just called me up and said, hey, we've got this new role we're creating. We think you're perfect for it. And at the time, I wasn't looking necessarily to leave Techstars. I was really enjoying what I was doing at Techstars. So my previous role was running Techstars LA, but I'd also been doing it for four years. And I thought, what a great opportunity to build something um, really big and exciting and that felt differentiated in venture. Um, I liked the team's vision. I liked Carter and Courtney's idea that they wanted to build a differentiated firm that was really focused on former operators helping founders. Um, I liked that they were very ambitious, that everyone had a lot of energy. Um, And just every person I met there, I liked more than the last one. And so I thought this could be great for for my next adventure. And then the other thing I'll say is, you know, I hadn't invested before at the Series A level. And Um, I thought it was, I like to learn. I am just, if I'm not learning something new, um, you know, I'm just not happy. And so I thought, what a great challenge to take my experience early stage investing and really learn how do I transition up to being a Series A investor. So that's been really great. That's something I want to dive into, actually. So I'm glad you mentioned that. (laughs) Going from Accelerator at Techstars, and then you have like Launchpad at M13. They also invest in series. A. Like, just take me through that evolution for you. Then, like, like, what you did to to learn, who you talked, like, how do you even go through? Okay, we're well now I'm going to be investor in Series A, which is a whole different ball game. Just take me through that process for oh you. Oh my gosh, like- a whole different ball game. So first of all, <laughs> let me just say that someone once asked me what would be my autobiography. 
um, if I, you know, I, the name of it and I said leap first and everyone I tell that to who knows me laughs because they're like, that is so right. I am a person who makes like quick decisions. So my normal way of investing is, you know, I meet founders and I'm kind of in, you know, kind of on the basis of who they are and how they present themselves and the vision they pitch. I want to, I want to, I want to quickly get on board with whatever they're doing. Um, and you can sort of do that at pre-seed and early stage, right? You don't have to do a long diligence process on, you know, is this product strategy right, you know, and, and do 17 customer interviews and all that. So it was a huge adjustment for me um, and a really great challenge to slow down my thinking, to take that initial excitement about the founder and kind of park it over here and say, what more can we learn about this? <laughs> What do I need to know about the market that I don't know? How do I think about the competition? Who else can I interview who's worked with this team before, who has insight into the customer base? Um, so it became a really interesting exercise for me. And I actually got in there um, when I first got there and I went to the associates and I said, you guys are going to teach me, like, I'm going to learn from you. And I know that really stinks because, you know, I'm coming in as a partner, but like, bear with me, I promise I will, you know, make it worth your while. And I'll be a great partner to work with. But right now I'm a student and I want you to teach me like how we do this, um, which was so awesome. And um, I love our whole, you know, team that we work with. Um, and and the, the, the younger associates were, you know, super patient with me as I kind of got up to speed <laughs> with how do we build complex, you know, financial outcome models um, you know, and, and look at market comps to think about, you know, does this really meet our investing criteria? It is such a different thing. And obviously we invest in seed at Vitalize, a little bit different in pre-seed with our angel community. Yeah. And then that next level is your point. There's so much more data. There's so many more things you have to look at and look into. And so you learn that process with talking to other people, obviously, and doing your own research with that as well. Where did the launch pad part of it fit into your role and how you did like both? Cause launch pad, you're talking like starting companies series a they have a lot of data they're like a couple years in like just take me through your day to day on that even with yeah those kind of things. i mean so launchpad um is a really interesting part of our strategy so there are a lot of venture firms that sort of have studio arms um where they ideate and they do internal incubation we think about ours as a little bit a little bit differently in that when we put something through our launchpad it's it, the idea has to come in with um you know with a um, a sort of outside unfair advantage that makes that idea compelling. So we don't believe that we as a team are well positioned to survey the market and be able to read the tea leaves well enough to, from the ground up, come up with a new business model that we believe is going to win. What we do believe we are really skilled at, and you know, one of the things we bring to the table is um, deep relationships across, you know, you know, kind of a massive network of people, some of whom have massive audiences of their own, um, and of a particular point of view on the market. So, you know, and then we've also done some things in partnerships. So we launched some companies with PepsiCo where they brought their sort of particular take on the market and where the market for healthy food was going. Um, and that was one strategy that we pursued. And then um, more recently, we launched a company in partnership with Tony Robbins um, that really grew out of his book that came out in February called Life Force. And the book is about longevity and the new science of longevity. And we built a business around that um, that's been in market now for six months and doing really well. But that idea kind of wouldn't work in the abstract. It worked 
because of the people around the table, including Tony Robbins. So those are the kind of opportunities that we're looking for in Launchpad. Um, and it really supports our core investing strategy because those companies become companies that we are really excited to build um, big positions in and to continue to support them as they grow. Okay, with that too, and I think other people are going to be curious as well. They're like, okay, Launchpad, great. You're starting your companies. But like, it's like, who runs those companies? Who are the people you bring in? Who are like, just take me through more of that because that's fascinating yeah. to have that part of it as well. I'm curious about that. Sure. Um, so we have an amazing talent team. So our the structure of our team is five investing partners, five operating partners. One of the five operating partners is Matt Hoffman, who's our head of talent. He mm-hmm. is a serial chief people officer um, with just a wealth of experience both in hiring and managing people, but also like building high-performing organizations. And we have a head of talent. Um, So with these launchpad companies, look, one of the key success factors is bringing in the right founders. So our talent team, um, you know, we ran a whole process for LifeForce and we found two amazing founders for that business. And look, I give them all the credit for the fact that the company is doing so well. I give us a little bit of credit for hiring them, but really all the credit of, of course, the company's success goes to those people. So I think if you're going to do that strategy, having a way of this strategy of incubation, being able to identify, you know, find, and then attract top talent into those opportunities is really important, which also means like the cap table has to make sense, right? Like, these studios that like are doing the studio takes 80% or whatever, like that does not make sense. And I mean, and me coming from a culture that is very founder friendly and focused on if we do what's best for founders, we're always going to be successful, but we have to focus on doing what's best for founders. And that philosophy kind of bleeds over into sort of how we think about Launchpad. Um, You know, the founders have to have a meaningful stake in order to build a company. Yeah, I remember talking uh, to Gail at our firm and about like that to that point, like the incentives aligning, having them be motivated and inspired yeah. to do the thing. If you don't have incentives with the equity, it doesn't make sense anyways. You wouldn't want that from your founders because it doesn't make sense with them building this this company as well. And that seems predatory to have the other side for like taking eighty percent or whatever as a studios. Different model to be whatever. That's that's their yeah, own. Yeah, and maybe those studios are you know I don't know contributing more capital or have a reason why that business model yeah. for them. Like it's just that's not what that's exactly. not the way we do it. Um, we're very much think about it as kind of ideators, um, vision, um, and packaging the right, bringing the right um, resources and people together around the idea, and then really letting the founders kind of drive the strategy is how we think about it. So from that, then, is that like, are those basically seed then companies or pre-seed, then you invest right after the next round, or is it like, they need another round before they get to your series A? Just take me through like how that flow has gone or how you see sure. it? Sure. Yeah. So we are doing the the pre-seed funding. We are doing, in some cases, most of the seed funding as well. And then by the time the <laughs> yep. company gets to Series A, you know, we really want to bring in other people. So, you know, really, yep. we want to bring in other firms as early as possible. We're never looking to just, it's just all in 13 all the time because, I mean, I just, I'm a collaborative human in general, but we just, and we are at M13, collaborative humans. Yeah. And, you know, we believe that there's other great venture funds that we want to partner with that, you know, can bring different ideas to the table, um, you know, as well as capital. So I'm curious with you personally with at M13, what are you most excited about just in terms of the areas you invest in and like company types of companies you, you see, like for you personally, what are you most excited about? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about being an M13 is, you know, I used to be just a real generalist investor. If you look at sort of my early portfolio from Techstars, I mean, I invested in a, 
you know, aerospace AI company, Slingshot Aerospace. I invested in, um, you know, a company that at the time was Szechuan chili sauce, Fly by Jang, you know, and then everything in between. Um, and I've had to really think about like, where are my spikes? Where are my kind of areas of expertise? And what do I really care about? And I'm drawn to. So there's a few areas. One of them actually is the future of work. Um, so love that. And <laughs> yes. Um, and I love talking about deals with Gail and, you know, sharing stuff back and Absolutely. forth because I think we're aligned in the way we see things. I'm I'm really excited about what we you could call the freelancer economy or this idea that you can you can build a fulfilling, uh, lucrative and stable career outside the construct of a job. So if yeah. you think about what are the technologies and platforms that are described by that as a space, you know, it's everything from labor marketplaces to fintech tools to, you know, benefits to ongoing upskilling and training to community. How do you build community if you're, you know, not in the workplace, you know, all the time? Um, so that's kind of one half of what I'm really excited about with the future of worth. And the other half is we still need corporations. We need them to be great. Corporations are struggling to retain talent in this market where all of these people are going out into this new economy. How do corporations remain great places for the people that want to choose that path? So anything around, um, you know, supporting healthy culture in the workplace. So I invested in all voices. Um, helping employees manage their financial future. So we've got North Star in our portfolio and things like solving just the tactical problems of helping people get to work. So we care um, is a company that I invested in earlier mm. this year. I love this company because it's kind of playing on both sides of these two things that I care about. So on the one hand, it's a marketplace for in-home childcare providers. So people working at home, creating a living, probably moms who are raising their own kids and who are running a daycare in their home, that access to that network is sold as a, an employee benefit. So on the other side of that marketplace, the people benefiting are, you know, working parents who need to get to work and need affordable childcare. And the great thing about Weaker's model is employers are helping their workforce kind of get access to that benefit. So I love everything about that. Um, and yeah. childcare is such a massive, massive problem um, right now in the economy that it's, it's just, it's like, we really need this right now more than ever. We had Jessica on the show talking oh, about Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I didn't even know. Talk to her about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, future of work, I mean, is a massive area. And the other one I would say is e-com infrastructure. I have always been excited by the potential to make it possible to launch a successful brand outside of the construct of the Amazon ecosystem. Um, so anything that helps um, small brands acquire customers, manage their business, manage their supply chain. Delivery, last mile delivery. I'm also really interested in the circular economy. Um, you know, whether it's sustainable materials, whether it's returns, re the resale market, we're hugely excited about at M13. Um, so there's just a lot of rich opportunity in there too. I want to tie in a question from Twitter because it's perfect for this. Okay. Uh, Melinda McClure asked. Uh, so when when Anna first joined M13, she wrote about uh, being excited about investing in tech for working mothers. And obviously, we talked about We Care here, which is going to tie into that. But I'd love to hear her reflections on that thesis over the past two years. Is enough innovation being done to support us moms? What tech is she excited about right now in regards to that as well? Oh, my gosh. 
never enough. No, there's not enough being done. <laughs> um, and there, I think there are great solutions out there that just aren't, you know, at scale yet. So I think there's a, there's a, there's we care and there's a no- number of other companies, you know, innovating in the childcare space that just need to, um, you know, become, you know, get greater adoption. Um, so that's kind of one category, I would say. The other category is workplace culture tools. I think there are a number of amazing tools in addition to all voices that are thinking about how do we, um, especially in sort of a remote world um, or, you know, a world where we've lost a lot of that in-person connectivity, like how do we create um, authentic connections and make people really feel heard and valued in the workplace? Um, I think there's a lot of room for innovation there. Um, you know, and then, I mean, other things for, for, you know, working mothers, um, you know, I think probably the best resource for this is the Marshall Plan for Moms, um, which was launched by Rajma Sajani, the founder of Girls Who Code. Um, and I think she's really laid out a kind of manifesto of what we need to do to support working mothers that I would almost look at as like, here's an investing thesis, you know, that I could get behind. So tons more work to do. I think it's a great question. I think the thing is that it may not always feel like we're making progress, but you know, I just have to go back to this idea that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice and that we'll get there eventually. And that the most important thing is that we keep, you know, we keep moving in that direction. One thing I'm curious about too, on that kind of a similar vein of sorts, but like you'd written an article about Gen Z and like their preferences, et cetera. But like, how do you look at age, different age, age groups and how they're affected in terms of the future work things you mentioned and like commerce as well, how they shop. I'm curious about anything you're seeing across the ages and different age categories uh, in your investing experience. So I've really had to think about this as a scientist because I am not in the target market. When you think about Gen Z, (laughs) my kids are all Gen Z. Right. So I have four kids, mm-hmm. all of whom fall into that um, generation. So I, I yeah. approach them like, you know, an explorer or a scientist going to visit a different planet. Um, and when we think about how big that generation is and the fact that they're just coming into the workplace, their habits um, and ways of engaging with each other are going to have a massive impact on how we all engage with each other and how we all do our work, how we all socialize. So if you think about what this generation is like and, you know, how they grew up, they're obviously all digital natives. You know, their yep. platforms they've grown up on are Snapchat and TikTok, fast moving, short form video. A lot of their social lives are actually, if not exclusively, then primarily online, which is so interesting and so different for, for those of us who grew up you know, going out on play dates and, you know, in-person gatherings and didn't grow up with cell phones. So I think um, I've found it really informative to think about what does that mean, right? So they're not, so 95% of Gen Z, like who has a LinkedIn doesn't use it, right? So think about the opportunity. What a massive opportunity. How are they going to network for a job? How are they, we're going to, where are they going to gather their network? How are they going to create a, digital accessible record of what they do, right? It's not going to be a paper resume for sure. And it's probably not going to be a LinkedIn profile. So what's that new thing? Like there's some, there's some startups, um, 
you know, working on that, um, including one that hasn't been announced yet that I wish I could talk about because I think it's so cool. Uh, um, but there's uh, going to be a lot of video next based time, next time. <laughs> yeah, you guys <laughs> probably know what it is. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of video based um, kind of, you know, work marketplaces and, um, you know, tools for finding jobs, um, you know, and also thinking about how to you know make social connections, right? So these TikTok is not a social platform, um, right? It's a it's a content platform. It's not a place to gather and connect in the same way that Facebook was sort of in the early days. And Gen Z, they're not on Facebook, right? They're barely on Instagram. You know, Snapchat is social for them, but like, where's the new gathering spot going to be? And how is that going to work? I think there's some interesting opportunities around that, thinking about, you know, online community for that generation too. What a competitive advantage to have four kids who are Gen Z. I mean, be like, well, hey, I have my. What, I are can run what, are you, what are you using? I can run my own little focus groups. It's very fun. <laughs> it's not fair. That's that's. I mean, yeah. It's like how else do you get that? You're like you have four kids in your household. It's like you just talk to them and like, oh, yeah. what are you using? What do you think about this? Like, oh, like jobs. You need a job. How do you need a job now? Like, it's very curious to to hear those insights. It's also uh, very humbling. And like, back to my point of, like, <laughs> I always want to be learning something new. I, you know, I have to, con- it's, mm-hmm. it's just a good reminder that I don't really know what the next hot thing is. <laughs> fair, fair. Like you just talk to more and more people. It's just to figure that out. I think it's something you find out too. Like we're pretty active on Twitter. So we always have deals coming inbound and we're just like, what are you building? It's like so interesting how the, the variety within even future of work, like we, our focus is like somewhat narrow by future of work, but it's not really because future of work touches so many different things that it's like, to your point, all different platforms are all different things. And across age groups, future of work, look at Gen Z, how big of a workforce that's going to be. So that's a huge group. It's, it's fascinating to see. I just have to, to say Twitter and- collectively is amazing. Um, all <laughs> and the vitalized Twitter, I mean, props to you. And what I love about it particularly, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, is like it's focused on helping founders, right? And people, and it's authentic, yeah. therefore, because you're coming from a place of like really just wanting to be of service to the community rather than sort of VC brags, right? VCs <laughs> congratulating themselves. Um, you know, uh, exactly. And, and, and that's really great. And that's, you know, that's what works. And that's the kind of content that people want. I try to do that too, but honestly, I just don't put time into it. You know, I I always have it on my list of like, do more Twitter, but I just, I don't, it's hard to find the time. Wait, Anna, do you have other things going on perhaps (laughs) besides Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) That's shocking to me. Uh, Yes, there is. uh, I want to say away from that actually, that's perfect. So in terms of helping founders and like, we take that approach for sure. Like that's an easy way I try to share resources and that comes from like my whole background building community. And that's why we built community for Biolize Angels. For you, with your experience as a founder and having a JD, being a consultant before, being on the investor side, executive coach, take me through how you look at helping founders and what they typically come to you for, what you're most like helpful for in terms of like, your experience. I'd be curious to hear more about that because you have such a wide variety of experiences that I'm curious how you approach that and what people come to you for. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. Um, I think it kind of falls into buckets and then it's sort of almost buckets of engagement. Like how deeply can I get engaged with this founder? So sort of at the top, it's really easy. I, uh, I try to be a connector wherever I can. So make introductions. If I can't do more for a founder who are two or three other people I can introduce them to that I know will be high value. Um, and, and I've created a way of doing that that's very low lift for me. So it allows me to help more people. 
Um, and so that I'm able to do for kind of a wide variety of people. I would say like the next layer for me is I love to dig in and just ask great questions around hmm. strategy, um, kind of product strategy, you know, growth strategy. And like all I'm bringing into those conversations is like questions. I am never, unless you really ask me and push me, I'm never going to tell you this is what you should do. Right. But I love to have conversations with founders where we kind of engage in co-creating solutions and answers like just through through dialogue. So I love to do that. Um, and then, you know, like on the deepest level, the founders that I have long trust based relationships with, you know, I hope that I'm a person that helps them identify like on a personal level, like how do they need to scale up their leadership and and, you know, I have the courage to give like tough feedback when I feel like they're ready to hear it, you know, and ideally when I have a great relationship yeah. like that, they're able to hear that from me. And we just, we have this really, um, you know, we just have a really good relationship where that kind of thing can happen. And over time, it's not only about, did I have like a transactional impact of connecting you with someone or, you know, giving you a little gem of a good idea, but it's like, did I help this person to become the biggest possible version of themselves? Like, and as a result, kind of like set their company on a new path. Like that's what I want to be doing for people. Um, there's another thing that I love to do that I can do in kind of like smaller bits, which is, I would say, um, telling someone back their story in a different way that unlocks something for them. So you, you know, you pitch your story. What I heard you say is I'll say that back and then I'll say it in my way. And a lot of times what happens is they say, wow, you said that really well. Like, let me see if I can incorporate that. Um, mm -hmm. However, I, you know, I was in a conversation recently with Roger Ehrenberg, um, you know, who's a long time, really well-known seed investor, kind of one of the the early, um, really successful seed investors. And he said something to me around this topic, which was, you want to look for someone who's a frame maker, not a frame taker. Mm. And I thought that was so interesting because I understood immediately what he meant because, you know, and please know that I say this with all humility. It is not like me to sort of toot my own horn, but I am a good frame maker. Like founders will say that. Yeah. I'm very good at kind of, seeing the, the forest for the trees, right? Seeing the big picture. But the founder needs to do that, right? So now I get a little worried when I pitch someone's business back to them and they're like, oh, I'm going to say that, right? Because they have to be the one that owns the frame and that makes the frame. And it's actually something I look for now. Is this founder a frame maker or a frame taker? I guess to the point as well, you know, obviously I ask a lot of questions having done like 400 podcast interviews, asking founders like, what's another way you could articulate that or say mm -hmm. that or what like to your point of like making them come up with it instead of you it's like asking them that type of thing as well to have them think of a different angle they could take or how would a different audience perhaps take what you're saying and that's something yeah. that's interesting too because i started this founder community recently and like talking with those founders about their story which is so big the story is everything for many reasons obviously for customers for investors for employees and like how do you take a different spin on that uh for different groups as well uh while still keeping the overall mission the overall vision of what you want to do and what you're trying to articulate uh which i find fascinating because there's no right answer it's just yeah how did that make them feel how did that make it's just it's i love that approach what you're saying i love that approach of um thinking about it rather than putting your own idea about what the frame is kind of inviting them to do it again or do it differently or kind of workshopping it with them. 
you know, and that's like always what I'm looking to do is kind of create a conversation where we have, um, we see the same thing and we've kind of, each of us knows that the other person gets it, you know, like that's sort of the connection that I'm looking for. But I love what you're saying about kind of inviting them, you know, into pushing their thinking forward, you know, really to see what they do with that. Yeah. And like, how do they respond and how they react and do they actually come up with something that they like that's better too? And like, wait a minute, oh, I should maybe think about this more and change it up because we get so stuck in our same thing. I think I remember interviewing someone, I forget who exactly it was. I think they said they did like 120 or like revisions of their pitch deck. And like, it's kind of crazy to think about and like, but it did get a lot better. So it's it's like that iteration helped on their story and telling it. Uh, so it can be helpful in that way. One thing I'm curious with, with M13, I know your platform side takes a bit of a different approach than like one partner to many, let's just say in terms of founders, you have a very hands-on approach. Take me through more of that for people who aren't as familiar with that side of M13 after investment, what that looks like, how you support founders more broadly as a team. I'm curious about that. Yeah, absolutely. And you got it exactly right, which is the idea that we see the founder being in the middle and being able to have individual relationships with our whole team as opposed to like needing to funnel everything through the investing partner. So so we've got five um, operating partners and then we've got a team of 30 people beyond the partners, most of whom fall on the side of portfolio support. So we call our portfolio support team propulsion because all of our imagery and iconography is around outer space because our it's name is so good comes. too, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. We actually just relaunched our website. So it's brand new. I noticed. <laughs> it's great. Yesterday. Um, so we're the propulsion team that helps propel um, people forward. So we run it with a really kind of tight system where we onboard founders to our system. We introduce all of our teams and resources. We identify right when we close the the investment, where can we plug in and be helpful? So some of the kind of verticals that we offer are um, growth. How do we help you with, you know, how do we help you think through go-to-market? Um, talent, talent strategy, and where can we help you source candidates? You know, so, and that's something people really want and really value that always feels like an urgent need. And so it's a place where we've really invested a lot of time um, in kind of building out our team and also our, our kind of um, platforms, resources around that. Um, data. So we have a, a um, Rob Olson, my partner, he's a, our head of data, and there's also um, a director of data as well. And they will dig in and look for um Look for insights about what's working in the business that might not be visible. You know, most companies, even at Series A, don't have an internal data team. So that's something that's, you know, incredibly valuable. Um, and then we have brand. Um, Christine Choi um, used to run brand at Virgin. She's phenomenal. She's just, you know, one of the best thinkers on how to express your 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 brand um you know in a beautiful way um and so we help founders kind of tell their story in a way that's kind of more powerful um and then we have a lot of structure around this so we have a weekly meeting where we run it like a consulting firm what did we do for our portfolio this week what projects do we have active what projects are we closing out who needs more help that we could be digging in um we, we we intentionally spend a lot of time on this because we know, you know, one of our founders said like M13 is the fund that everybody says they are, which is like one of my favorite quotes. Like, I think everybody says we do this. It's like, we, like, we put so much effort into making sure that we're actually doing it. 
you know, and it's like, we believe that it makes a difference. And more importantly, like our founders believe that it makes a difference. And that's really what we care about. Like back to the point we were discussing earlier, it's just like, if we do what's best for founders, like everything will work out. Yeah. Uh, two things from that. One, one, I saw that, that quote that you mentioned about, about the VC firm that VC firm say they are. I thought it was great. I was like, that's so perfect of putting it that way. Also the visual I saw of like the founder, like a partner in the middle with the nodes outside versus yeah. the other way. I was also, I was like genius. Like I'm so like jealous of that. I want to do aspirationally, uh, create some content like that. I thought it was great, uh, in terms of that as well. And the site looks wonderful. One thing oh, that we you. can't just like, yes, we can't not talk about is the other things you're involved with too. So like the fund LA, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, all voices pledge LA uh, just take me through those real quick, what your involvement, I think we can't just not talk about them as well. Absolutely. So the Fund LA I got involved with um, when Jenny and Scott, who were the founders of the Fund Global, um, yep. brought it to different regions and ecosystems. And so we, we stood up the Fund LA with an amazing team of founders and operators to back it. We raised a fund. We invested in 40 companies through that fund. It's now done. That was an amazing adventure. Um, there's some really exciting, wonderful companies in that. And um, Jenny and Scott are both close friends. Um, M13 is now an LP in the fund, which has moved to a more consolidated centralized strategy, but still has this really strong community of operators um, that believe in, you know, that want to be part of a, of a really engaged community that helps founders. So Jenny and Scott are continuing with the strategy. Um, and, you know, I'm now sort of a friend of the firm. Um, but a really, a really big supporter. Um, Jenny and I were at Techstars together, you know, close friend. Some of the people I call up when I want to workshop or talk a deal, talk through a deal um, and think they're really strong investors and happy to sort of still be working with them as a partner, you know, and Pledge LA, um, you know, I've been on the advisory board of Pledge LA um, since the beginning. Um, it's a team of people and a mission I care about deeply. You know, when we could see that the LA ecosystem was really taking off and, um, you know, was growing and that exciting things were happening, you know, in LA tech, we wanted to form this organization around making sure that that included all of all communities and all stakeholders. And that's the mission of Pledge LA is to, um, is to both hold LA tech community accountable and then also create ways um, to bring more diversity and, you know, different voices into that community. So, We've launched some amazing programs, including um, a summer intern venture program that has had incredible results, including three of the grads of that program now having full-time jobs in venture, um, nice. a founders fund program that has given non-dilutive capital um, to, uh, I think it's about 40 companies now um, with founders of color, mostly also building in you know, underserved communities that were not as connected into the tech ecosystem. And we're now talking about what is the next wave of Pledge LA going to be. Um, we just had a meeting on it a couple of weeks ago. So I'm, I remain committed to that. And I'm excited for kind of where it's going to go next now that LA has even more, you know, interest and excitement around the, the tech community. Um, yeah, we saw Tech Week, which I, so I'm living nomadically for a few months and I happened to leave the week that they had that and I had this plan for a while, so I missed it, but it seemed great. LA Tech Week seemed wonderful as well. <laughs> you know, thing. LA Tech Week was great. I have to tell you, I was honestly shocked that like we were as a community able to pull that off. Um, you know, and we did. <laughs> and 
everybody kind of teamed together. You know, it was a, it was a real community effort. And, you know, I think it was, I think it was just awesome. It was just a good testament to where the community is and gave a, what I'm most excited about is a lot of people who might not have known what, what LA was about or what was happening, like were able to come and experience it. Um, and so that was cool. Just, just having a lot of people come visit LA and, and see what we're up to. Yeah. And look, I've always, you know, wanted to be in the community, kind of a leader and champion of, um, backing underrepresented founders of building an inclusive community. And like, I get to still do that at M13 and that's, you know, something that M13 as a firm also values. So it's, it's great to be at a place that I feel, you know, kind of supports and shares my values and celebrates them and gives me honestly, like a really big platform to continue to do that work. This question came up uh, recently. So I'm going to ask you with your investment uh, focused in series A, we haven't really talked about this yet. What are some of the things you're looking for for a company to get investment for M13 at a Series A? Anything you can share that'd be helpful for founders? I know this comes up and there's a lot of different variants, but I'm just curious yeah. anything from your perspective you're looking for at a Series A in terms of if you have Absolutely. metrics, if you have what you're looking for. Yeah. And I will answer that question and I'll also just tell you like a little secret, which is I did do a bunch of pre-seed deals this year and we also do seed deals. Ooh. I don't want to confuse people by talking about it too much, but you know, I really love early okay. stage and I was very lucky to be able to do a bunch of early stage investments earlier this year um, that we hope will mature into series A of course. Um, positions for our fund. But in terms of series A, you know, what we're looking for. So I would say let's start with market. Um, so building in a big market is really important. You know, we've got to believe that you can you can build a company in whatever the market is that can be not just a billion dollar company, but, you know, a really a couple of times bigger than that. And so if your total market size is under 5 billion, you're just not going to get there. So sometimes we just, we have to not even proceed with looking at a company. If we don't believe that with the core market and adjacent markets that you could grow into, there is a big market opportunity. The second one is and always will be team. Um, you know, is this a team that we believe has founder market fit, has the right, um, you know, grit and learning mindset, um, has the ability to attract the right talent around them to get the idea done, is truly committed um, to going on the journey, which we know, you know, is going to be long and hard. Um, you know, and are, are people that we want to hang out with and help and build alongside and kind of can imagine yeah. spending a lot of time with, because at this level, we're going to be with them and spending a lot of time with them, um, and having them really be part of our family for a long time. So we just, you know, that connection has to be there. Um, and then at series A, we're looking for some very specific things around having evidence of product market fit and a pathway to profitable customer acquisition. So you don't have to be there yet, but we have to have like the playbook. We have to be able to visualize how is it going to get from here, you know, to, to growth. And all of that ideally is backed by some kind of, you know, special insight or special sauce that we believe gives this company a particular advantage in that whole frame. Within all of that, do you have like particular milestones you need them to be at and you can share, feel free if you can't, no worries. But do you have things that you're looking for? Obviously, there's always variants because there's different variables you're yeah. taking into account. But is there something you're looking for in that? Yeah. I mean, so I'll just make the general point, which is I think, you know, the metrics now in this current market have sort of 
you know, changed. So maybe last year when you could have a million in, you know, recurring revenue and be a viable series A company, I think it's a bit tougher at this point. Um, you know, and that's, that's related to the fact that if you look at, um, market multiples in the public markets and you think about exit pathways, right. The market multiples, um, you know, are just less favorable right now, which means there's just a higher bar. So if you think if it was a million last year, it's 2 million this year, you know, and of course that changes across whether you're a marketplace business model or your SaaS business model. If you have recurring revenue, the number is lower, um, than if you have non-recurring revenue. So for a marketplace model that's off GMV, you know, it's not 2 million, it's probably 3 million in, in revenue, you know, at this point. But as you said, everything has a big asterisk. <laughs> There's no hard and fast rule. These are just general guidelines. Um, of course. And, and, then, and then how fast you're growing and how big the market can kind of be offsetting factors into that. Of course. You know, and like listening to me talking numbers to you, like I am not like I was like, I, you know, I, like I said at the beginning, I don't, this isn't how I generally think of, you know, I'm not a person who's like looks at the numbers first, but right. I do look at the numbers now eventually. Right. But now you're a series A investor too. I know you can't, you can't shake off the pre-seed and seed, but you are also that. Yeah. So yeah. You, can, you can own those numbers as well. Yeah. Anna. Yeah. Okay, one thing I had to finish with because it was funny and I, I like Mickey a lot. So Mickey asked, uh, we have to talk about your air guitar era. And from her bringing up this air guitar era led me to a rabbit hole today I did not intend on going on. And so I went to watch a YouTube video all about that movie you produced. I looked at LinkedIn and I go deep dive of that. And you mentioned like you're basically producing that as just take me through that interest in the first place. And I'm curious as, as we wrap this up on a light note. But that's fun. I love that you went down the air guitar <laughs> rabbit hole. You know, air guitar is kind of a big social movement that like never really happened that we all believed in. Mm-hmm. Um, so look, I think, it, I think it goes back to even before I was making investing, I was always backing entrepreneurs, you know, and um, this these two guys came into my office when I was a talent manager and had this Wall Street yep. Journal article about the World Air Guitar Championships and said, we think this would make a great TV show. And I immediately started thinking. TV show, movie, U.S. competition, you know, I start. And so we got really excited as a team and we went and licensed the rights to launch the U.S. Air Guitar Championships from the World Organization, which is actually in Ulu, Finland. I don't, you probably know that now that you did your research, but the World (laughs) Air Guitar Championships are held above the Arctic Circle every summer. Um, And so we became the organization launching the U.S. Air Guitar Championships. Um, We did it in 2003. We filmed the whole thing. Um, We ended up um, making a movie about it unintentionally. We were filming footage for a promo for a TV show that we were not able to sell, but we were so in love with the story, we decided to turn it into a feature film. Um, And those two entrepreneurs who had that idea, um, they have day jobs. I'm sorry to tell you that Air Guitar is not supporting them, but they are still running the U.S. Air Guitar Championships. you know, and it, it was a really fun project to be involved with. Um, that was just about creativity and joy and the joy of essentially pretending to be a rock star. That is incredible, first of all, um, that you took a swing at that. You're like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. I, I just find it fascinating because you never know what you're going to see, what you're gonna, what's going to come across your desk, especially when you're building stuff as an entrepreneur. Like I know you're an entrepreneur for many years. Like 
you just never know what can happen, which I find fascinating and I had to ask about. Um, one last thing I'm also curious about. Uh, I think you posted uh, a thing about your mom at one point. You're saying like she was fierce. It's like the one word you used to describe her. Yeah. Do you embody that? Like how did she impact you? I'm just curious about that. Yeah. Wow. I love that question. Um, she was fierce. So my mom represented writers. So in a similar way, so the way I work with entrepreneurs, let's say, is how she worked with writers. And if she found someone she believed in, she would go to any lengths to ensure their success. She was an incredibly tough negotiator, but never on her own behalf, always on someone else's, right? Mm. And so what I learned from her was um, like how powerful and deeply satisfying it can be to be like on the sidelines helping someone else, whether it's a founder or an author or a creator of some kind, like achieve their vision and to use your own personal powers and conviction to help someone else. Right. And, and, you know, she was fundamentally more comfortable not being in the spotlight and, and being able to speak about someone on someone else's behalf. I would say I'm in the same boat. Like I could, I will wax poetic about my founders all day long when it comes to talking about myself. Like it's just, it's something I've had to practice and develop. So she sort of taught me that, you know, the other thing is I didn't realize when I was a kid, my mother was unusual. She was a full-time career woman. She had a PhD. Um, You know, she was just a powerful human who was really respected in her industry. And so I grew up just thinking that was normal life. Um, And that obviously, I think, really helped me to create a vision for myself about who I could be in the world without feeling like the world was putting limits on me because I didn't see those. What a powerful thing. And I want to end it there. So where's the best place for people to get in touch with you, Anna, uh, learn more about M13? M13.co is our website, which, as I said, was just relaunched and it is beautiful. Um, (laughs) And Anna W. Barber on Twitter. Um, I am on Twitter a lot. I respond to DMs um, and would love love to talk to anyone who wants to reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Justin. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.